whether the deficit is good or bad is not something that your average person intuitively understands. On polls, people will say they want more spending, lower taxes, lower deficits. That is mathematically impossible. You cannot do that. There is no way to have all those three things. It is just arithmetic. Maybe if two plus two equals five, like that one Twitter guy says, <laughs> no, you can't do it. I'm happy to make a million dollar bet with Balaji. <laughs> this is a huge opportunity. Globalization won't just mean what it meant in the 90s. It's not just about cheap labor. It's not just about some sweatshop in Indonesia slapping together some Nike shoes anymore. China's not going to let you get that market share. It's going to just stand up its own international champions, if necessary, with your stolen intellectual property and push you right out of its market, which is what happened. Surprise! Who could have predicted that that's what they would do? <laughs>
certainly think that just willingness to say, okay, big fiscal, as Joe Weisenthal of Bloomberg calls it, big fiscal can do everything, you know, just like fiscal, fiscal, like basically just means big deficit, right? I think that's going to change now. I think that I think we are headed back toward the cycle of something a little more like what we were in in the in the early 90s. Maybe, you know, it's hard to say whether or not it'll be more, uh, you know, dramatic. But I, I think that the pendulum is swinging back and there's a, a few reasons. Um, but does but does that make sense when I say age of austerity? I just mean people being worried about deficits. Yes, it makes sense. But f first describe why were the progressives not pro sort of spending? It, it's almost hard to imagine before the the great recession um well i mean you know cynically it was it was something you could bash ronald reagan for that was very concrete <laughs> uh, but also in terms of the economics of it interest rates at the time were above the the uh rate of growth interest rates were still high they hadn't completely come down from when uh in the 80s when we beat inflation by raising interest rates very high at the early 80s they hadn't completely come down yet and growth was still kind of slow. It had, we hadn't seen the, um, the acceleration of the late 90s. And so what you saw was that the debt was naturally growing faster than tax receipts, which is what happens when R is higher than G, right? When you have interest rate higher than the growth rate of the economy, then the interest on the debt uh, will, will make the debt naturally grow relative to the size of the economy unless you cut deficits, unless you balance your budget and do something about that, right? And so as long as R is greater than G, the deficit will just grow without bound unless you do something about it. And then eventually problems will happen. We can talk about what those problems would be and when they would happen. We can talk about that later, but it just means as long as R stays higher than G, if you don't balance your budget, you get infinite debt to GDP. And so, so people, that, was, that was very worrying. And especially this was true in the, mid, in the early 90s. We had a recession. We had a general slowdown in the economy in the early 90s. And people forget this. Like people think of the '90s as the, and the late '80s and, this, and the '90s as this this unbroken string of awesomeness. Um, maybe because many of them were kids during that time. But um, but people think of that. But but really, there was this you know period in the early '90s that was quite bad, like economically, and um, and because of that, the rate of growth slowed down. And so people were worried because, uh, you know, people were getting thrown out of jobs. And there was this idea that if we can balance the budget, we can uh, lower interest rate, long-term interest rates. And if we lower long-term interest rates, um, then that will juice the economy because lower interest rates mean a better economy and more people will get jobs because with this time in the early 90s, people didn't have jobs. They're getting laid off. Um, and then we thought, okay, if we can lower long-term interest rates by balancing the budget, uh, then people get jobs. And Brad DeLong, uh, my uh, co-host on my other podcast, Hexapodia, which is not nearly so well produced because we're rank amateurs, but you know, it's fun. Um, yes, thank you. Uh, it's, 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 we try to make it the nerdiest podcast and never explain any of our references. <laughs> but but um, so he went into the Clinton White House. He went to work at the Clinton White House at that time. And you know, one of his big things was balance the budget, balance the budget. And uh, Robert Rubin was the famous guy who wanted to do this, who thought of this idea worked uh, for Clinton, he wanted to balance the budget because he said it'll lower long-term interest rates. And if you lower long-term interest rates, then not only does the debt become more sustainable, but it also juices the economy. And so they did that. And that seemed to work because long-term interest rates did come down. You know, the, the budget was, you know, we, it didn't officially get balanced until the late 90s, but most of the work was done in 1993 by that budget, the Clinton budget, which was an austerity budget. 
And yeah. I remember as a little kid, you know, cheering the idea that we were going to cut the deficit. I didn't know anything about anything. I thought this was so great because my parents thought it was great. And my parents didn't really know why they thought it was great either. But there were real reasons out there for someone to think it was bad or it was great to balance the budget and and bad to have all this debt. And um, and we could be headed there again. And so I think that um, interest rates are, are higher now. Long term interest rates have not risen as much, but there's they've still risen a bit. If long-term interest rates rise more, uh, that is if people decide that that the Fed will have to keep short-term rates high for a long time in order to prevent the return of inflation, which is a distinct possibility. I don't think inflation is going to necessarily come back, but I think that we might have to keep interest rate. We might not be able to like cut rates to back to like zero without inflation coming back. So we might keep rates at 5% for a long time. If that happens, long-term rates will rise. That will make the deficit very hard to roll over. Or they'll make, I'm sorry, the debt very hard to roll over. In the 1990s, we had um, debt that was much lower as a percent of GDP than it is now. Debt was maybe 60% of GDP. Now it's about 120% of GDP. So debt as a percent of GDP is much higher, meaning that a, a much smaller rise in interest rates can produce a much higher rise in the interest costs that government has to pay. Another reason progressives probably supported austerity back in the early 90s was that interest expenses were starting to crowd out welfare in a big way. You know, we, we were spending a, a large percent, like 12.5% or something like that of our, of our annual federal budget on just paying the interest on our debt. That was crabby because it meant that, that that was less money to spend on welfare stuff, which progressives all wanted. So, so it was squeezing the federal budget. And if, if, if short-term interest rates stay high, if long-term interest rates rise now, we're going to see the federal budget get really squeezed again. So really, austerity now, it was a way, it was like austerity now to prevent the need for greater austerity later. Yeah. The idea that we bring, bring rates down now, make it cheaper for the government to carry this debt, and then we don't have to pay all this interest cost, and then we can raise welfare later. In fact, that's exactly what happened, exactly what we did. So it was successful. Our austerity of the early '90s was successful. And and share more about you, you, you about some of the reasons why you think it might it might happen uh, again. Not just the need for it, but how it might actually play out. The way it'll play out is very simple. It's that the government rolls over its debt. The average maturity of the government's debt is maybe seven eight years, which means that on average, half of the government's debt gets rolled over every seven or eight years. It's not quite like that, but but about that much, right? And so wait a few years. If short-term interest rates don't come down by 2028, right? Or, or even 2025, if short-term interest rates don't come down, long-term rates will rise. Because, you know, long-term rates have to ultimately be a function of short-term rates. It would be really silly to have you be able to borrow for 10 years at, at 2% a year or roll over your debt every year for like 5% a year, those, that's way out of whack. Like there's some, there's going to be some difference there, but it's not going to be um, that big, right? The, the liquidity premium is not going to be that, that huge. So the, if long-term, if, if people think, okay, you know, this was not just a temporary little blip of interest rates, like interest rates are not going to go back down to like 0%. We're not, that age is not coming back for a long time. Long-term rates will rise from where they are now. And that could happen that could happen this year. That could happen any day, right? Because a market interest rate, bond traders get to determine what these interest rates are. Um, and so that could happen tomorrow. But I think that essentially, if we go another 
couple of years without short-term rates coming down, people are long-term rates will rise. When long-term rates rise, the government starts having to roll over its debt at high long-term interest rates because the government is borrowing five-year bonds, 10-year bonds, and you know, and some some two-year bonds and one-year bonds. But, but the longer interest rates stay high, the the more the government has to roll over its debt into higher yielding bonds, meaning the higher the interest rate cost that the government pays goes. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like, and so, so right now the government's still not paying that much interest. Uh, interest rates costs are spiking, but they haven't spiked as much as they could because a lot of the debt that the government's carrying was still borrowed back in the day when debt was free, essentially, all the way up through, through uh, 2021. But we're already starting to see interest costs spike. They're not up to 90s levels, but they are increasing. And given another couple of years, they will increase a lot. And at that point, uh, we will we will start facing a choice between doing the incredibly stupid thing, which is borrowing even more to cover the interest costs, which is a that will that will lead to collapse. Or uh, we will just have to cut back on things. And um, you know, defense spending is a lot lower as a percentage of GDP now than it used to be. So Clinton got away with doing austerity by cutting some defense budgets. Now we'll have to cut mostly health, like healthcare. Everything will see a cut. All the science spending we want to do, the defense spending we need to do, the um, you know, uh, infrastructure that we need to do, uh, industrial policy, all these things will see cuts. But the the thing that will come under the most pressure to get cut is healthcare, uh, especially healthcare for the poor, Medicaid, but but also healthcare for veterans and the old and all the other people that our government buys healthcare from. Our our government pays for more than half the healthcare in America. Uh, people think we have this privatized healthcare system, but in fact, we just have it's just slightly more privatized than other countries. It's Government pay, I forget what it is, 56% of all the healthcare spending in America is just government, something like that, 50-something percent. Um, that will come under big uh, pressure. And that's not entirely a bad thing because, you know, if the government's like, okay, we're going to spend less, then then healthcare providers will have to cut some of their outrageous prices. So it's not 100% apocalypse, but it's going to be really painful for a lot of people. You know, we've already seen the end of student debt cancellation. We've seen the end of the expanded child tax credit. These are already forms of austerity that we're already doing, but we're going to see more. And that austerity is going to hit healthcare spending. Um, and it might, it, it will probably hit welfare spending. The Democrats will try to protect programs for the poor. Republicans will try to kill programs for the poor. And Republicans will have a little bit of success killing some of the programs for the poor or, or shrinking them, I mean. And defense spending will take a hit. Everything will take a hit. Uh, the only thing that won't take a hit is social security. You know, even that, like the, the rapid aging of the American population means that social security benefits will be cut as well at some point. Um, they'll just be cut automatically instead of through congressional action. That will happen in, that'll happen in 10 years. But that's, that's a story for like a little farther out, 10 years, not too far out, I guess. But basically interest rate costs, interest costs are about to start rising and that will put a lot of pressure on government spending. Brian Kaplan has this quote. He says, the median American is moderate national socialist, status to the core in both economic and social policy. Um, it, it seems that both parties, you know, have sort of, uh, you know, gone against the idea of austerity in, in, in recent years. Where do you think the political will is, is going to come from for this to happen? Well, I don't, it, it's hard to say uh, because I don't really know where political will ever comes from. Yeah, I think suddenly people get upset about something and then everyone's making a big deal out of it. And then, you know, it's like, where did that come from? I don't know. But basically progressives are going to realize that, that inter higher interest costs are crowding out welfare spending while 
conservatives are going to hammer progressives on having increased the debt. They'll see an opportunity, much as you know, progressives saw the opportunity to hammer Reagan on the debt in the early 90s, or the memory of Reagan, obviously. Just as they did that, conservatives will be able to say, well, you borrowed all this money during COVID. And of course, Trump did a lot of it too, right? I mean, that the, the biggest increase in debt was under Trump in the middle of COVID. But conservatives will, will rediscover their love of austerity. Conservatives are in a sweet spot in fiscal stuff because they can switch from loving deficit because, because their base is, cares so much about social issues. They can switch from pumping up deficits to like bashing Democrats for pumping up deficits on a dime. And no one really cares because Brian Kaplan, I don't know if Brian Kaplan is right about national socialist. I think that was something that he said just to get attention, but he's right in the sense that social issues are the main dividing uh, line. They're the main dividing line for the country. And your average person understands pretty well, understands social issues pretty well because they understand, you know, sort of group dynamics and like who gets status and who gets less status and blah, blah, blah. You know, abortion, they understand, people understand abortion pretty well. People understand these social issues and these social issues produce deep cleavages and polarization in our society. Whether the deficit is good or bad is not something that your average person intuitively understands. On polls, people will say they want more spending, lower taxes, lower deficits. That is mathematically impossible. You cannot do that. There is no way to have all those three things. It is just arithmetic. Maybe if two plus two equals five, like that one Twitter guy says, no, you can't do it. People want more stuff. They're like, well, of course I want more spending. Then I get more money. Well, of course I want lower taxes. Then I have to pay less money. Well, of course I want lower deficits because someone said deficit is bad, right? It's bad. Yeah. And so... <laughs> The age of austerity merely has to do with which of those mutually incompatible desires gains the upper hand. Essentially, the, the political will will come from people like me who are like, oh my God, you know, the, on, on the progressive side, progressive commentators are already starting to be pro-austerity. So you see Annie Lowry, um, who's, uh, you know, pretty well-known progressive commentator saying, oh my God, deficits. Uh, you see Dylan Matthews at Vox talking about how Deficits are a long-term problem. Um, you saw Jeff Stein of the Washington Post. You see a lot of these progressive people worrying about deficits, starting to worry about debt and deficits. You'll see that. And then on the, on, the, on the right, it'll just come from opportunism because they mostly just care about social issues anyway, so they'll just bash progressive stuff. Um, so that's where the political will is going to come from. Get ready for that. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. You you had another post that you linked to where you talk about basically no one knows how much the government can borrow. Right. So, of course, there will be some voices calling saying, who cares if our interest cost goes up? Borrow more. Just borrow more. And then, of course, we're like, well, the money you borrow will then cost even more in interest. Then just borrow more to cover that and borrow more to cover that and borrow more to cover that. And so you have the debt, you know, going on an exponential path. Like that is an exponential function when when every amount that you borrow has a higher interest rate than the last amount you borrowed. That's an, that, that goes to infinity. And so the idea is debt can go to infinity. It's no problem. Well, that's wrong. At some point, debt starts to matter a lot um, because people cut you off. You cannot find someone to lend you money. And then you have two choices. You can either default or you can go to the central bank and say, central bank, print us money, you know, and use that to finance this, this ever-exploding, insane, increasing deficit. And the central bank says, okay, we'll do that for you. And then you get hyperinflation and your economy collapses. And we usually see this in, 
we see this in like a few Latin American countries, a few Middle Eastern countries. Like it's a common thing in Latin America, um, occasionally Africa. It's not good. It is, it will have us, you know, like, I'm not going to say it's necessarily going to have us like eating rats, but like it could. Venezuelans ate rats when their economy collapsed from hyperinflation. Wow. They really ate rats. Yeah. What will the age, age of austerity mean for, for growth? Uh, so the age of austerity could mean, I, um, it could mean a lot of things for growth. You know, if, if long-term rates are high, that will choke off growth. And then if deficits then come down, then the budget gets roughly balanced. That will raise growth again from the lower point that it was when the interest rates went up, right? So that could happen. Um, so the austerity itself could juice growth even if it's necessitated by lower growth. In general, yeah, so, so higher long-term interest rates as a result of, you know, out-of-control deficits and, debt and, you know, interest payments, higher long-term interest rates are bad for growth. Because it means companies can't, because when, when interest rates go up, companies find it harder to borrow. Companies finance themselves by borrowing. They finance their expansion plans by borrowing. Whether you're a commercial real estate developer or you're, you know, a factory or your utility or anyone, higher interest rates make it harder for you to borrow. And so then you just don't. And so then you don't hire people and those, then people have less to spend and consumption goes down. And then, you know, investment goes down, consumption goes down, investment goes down, consumption goes down, blah, blah, blah. And then at some point it reaches equilibrium and then your economy is worse. So in the aftermath of the great recession, austerity was, was bad for growth, but austerity would become good for growth at that point. It turns out that austerity isn't always either bad or good for growth. Sometimes it's bad. Sometimes it's good. And uh, when you've got higher long-term interest rates, austerity can be good Interesting for growth. And, and so zooming out a bit, when our, our friend Abology sends me graphs that show like, uh, you know, majority of the money printed has been printed in the last, you know, decade or few, few years in kind of escalating ways or that, that the debt has increased significantly in recent years. And you look at a trend line and it just looks, it, it looks like unsustainable. Is, is he wrong? because um, you know the rest of the world is dependent on the on the dollar in a way that um, like there's nothing to worry about or or, or... I'm happy to make a million dollar bet with Balaji. <laughs> why should we not be panicking that when you look at the the debt lines or the money printing line um, so first of all, a lot of those numbers aren't taking inflation into account itself. Right, so inflation just reduces what the the meaning of a dollar. So um, you know if um, if your interest costs or whatever, I, I don't know what graphs he's showing you, so I can't look exactly at them, and I can't imagine exactly what he's sending you. But he and some other people were sharing around like, oh my god, interest costs are so high now. Well, not in, once you adjust for inflation. Once you adjust for inflation, it's a much smaller spike, and you see that interest costs were much higher in the early nineties than they are now. That could change, you know, interest costs could keep spiking, keep going up, it could change. But a lot of these scary graphs are just failure to adjust for inflation. It's just like the same trick every time. So adjust your graphs for inflation. If it's not adjusted for inflation, don't panic. The, the US dollar, we would like to be a little bit weaker than it is to, relative to other currencies. That doesn't mean people are gonna abandon the dollar and use Bitcoin or some fantasy. What it would mean is that, you know, financial system rebalances a little, so it doesn't depend so much on America. And then American exports can be more competitive again. Everyone talks, you know, when you talk about like why semiconductors are so much cheaper to 
produce and sell in Taiwan. Everyone talks about things like, oh, the Taiwanese workers work so hard. They work all day. And, you know, like, oh, they're so much more productive. They're brilliant, blah, blah, blah. And then someone's like, okay, well, wait a second. First of all, you're paying these people, you know, $80,000 a year to pay, you know, in America, that level of skill will command $250,000 easily. So there's salary differences. And then on top of that, you look in, at some of these differences and you see that Taiwan's exchange rate is really cheap and America's is very expensive. The, the strong dollar means that it's hard to build stuff here. And if you believe that we need to make stuff in America, you shouldn't want the dollar to be strong, right? You should want the dollar to be weaker. We use this loaded terminology of strong and weak, but a weak dollar makes American exports strong in global markets. So it's, it's kind of a con, you know, the, this term of strong and weak dollar because it's so focused on consumption. But when you're talking about selling your stuff, a cheaper dollar is stronger. It is a it is a weapon in the arsenal of our companies. Yep. When people complain about China, quote unquote, dumping, why don't you or like keeping their is it that they're keeping their currency artificially low? Well, China is no longer doing that. So right now, what's happening is that people are scrambling to get their money out of China, uh, which is putting downward pressure on the currency. So the yuan isn't is still cheap, but it's not artificially cheap anymore. But when China dumps things, what it's really doing is using government subsidies to subsidize its products in other markets. So, for example, uh, Huawei would go and submit bids for wireless uh, technology that were a third the cost of like, you know, its, its rivals like, um, you know, Nortel, like Alcatel, Lucent, whatever, whoever they were, their rival was. They would submit a bid that was like not a little, not 20% lower, but like. 60 to 70% lower, completely uneconomical, but it wasn't a loss leader where it's like, okay, we're going to, first we're going to get the business and then we'll jack up prices once we, once we've gotten the network effect. It's not that it wasn't that it was that the Chinese government was simply throwing cash at them and giving them cash to do this. You were bidding not against Huawei, the company and its future earnings, but against the fiscal reserves of the Chinese government. Yeah. And so that is, that is dumping. Now China, you know, has massively subsidized Electric cars, maybe that's good because people buy more electric cars, but Europe is pretty scared of this. Um, that is dumping. Um, when, you, when you have government subsidize products that you then sell overseas. So one, one interesting thing about China is that its electric car exports have soared, but its total production has not because Chinese people stop buying cars because China's in a recession now, no matter what their bullshit official growth numbers say. They are in a recession and people aren't buying cars now. So instead they just sold them cheaply overseas and those things are heavily subsidized. So of course they're outcompeting everyone else because suddenly you can buy a Chinese car for 10,000 bucks. Well, I'll take that, you know? And so that is dumping and that is really happening. Yeah. That's interesting. When, when the dollar is weaker, that helps, um, exports and hurts imports. Um, so what is kind of the net effect on the, on the economy? It's hard to say. But I think that that will, that will ultimately increase growth and increase investment because we'll be able to, you know, pumping up export, an export boom is good for us, ultimately. It doesn't mean, there's, there's a point past which it's, it's no longer good, but, but we, we could use some more exports. Our, our dollar is too, quote unquote, strong. Yeah. Um, and how, how do you know it's too strong? We have a giant trade deficit. Yeah, got it. Okay. Um, so, so yeah, evening that out, that, that makes sense. L let's segue into your 
other great post that you had uh, recently, which was the the next phase of globalization is going to be awesome. What, why don't you unpack what, what you're trying to do here? Yeah, so I'm 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 pretty positive about the uh, about globalization here. Um, in the '90s, if you're old enough to remember the '90s, in the '90s we had this idea of what globalization meant. It meant that companies in you know, like Nike or some company in America would would go around the world looking for cheap labor and buy some factories. Oh, Indonesia has a cheap factory this week. Let's go there and then build factories there. And then, you know, uh, basically labor arbitrage. And that was our idea of globalization. Um, Japanese and Korean electronics makers were going to places like Malaysia and Thailand. Car makers were going to cheaper places. And it was this sort of free for all where the capital was flowing around to companies that sort of made stuff cheaply. And then something changed, which was China. So in the 2000s, globalization changed. It no longer made, it no longer meant decide whether to make your stuff in Turkey, Poland, Malaysia, Indonesia, or wherever. It meant you make everything in China. China, you know, through a combination of low labor costs, low land costs, low energy costs, low financing costs, and just sheer scale, China just had this unbeatable price in the 2000s. And everybody moved their stuff to China. And of course, surplus labor dried up, Chinese wages rose, all their costs rose and rose and rose, and their price advantage stopped being as big, but their scale advantage remained because now China had captured much of global manufacturing. It meant that if I want to make 10,000 shoes, I could think about where to make them and maybe do some cost arbitrage. Maybe, maybe it's Bangladesh, maybe it's Ethiopia. But if I want to make 10 million shoes, there's only one place to do it. It's China because that's the only place that has the capacity. So all the manufacturing like that could move to China, moved to China. And that was the 2010s, right? That was the globalization of the 2010s. So in the 2000s, it was the China price. In the 2010s, it was the China scale. And also throughout all of this, it was the China market because everybody had this tantalizing dream of like 1.4 billion Chinese consumers. If I just even got a little bit of that market share, I'd be so goddamn rich. And it never happened because China's not going to let you get that market share. It's going to just stand up its own international champions, if necessary, with your stolen intellectual property and push you right out of its market, which is what happened. And so, surprise, who could have predicted that that's what they would do? <laughs> but anyway, so, so the China market opportunity only existed for like a very few lucky companies, luxury brand sellers, and like there are a couple of people. Um, eventually China, like one by one, just pushed all the real industrial companies out of their markets. So there was the China price, the China scale and the China market, which meant globalization just meant China for 20 years. And now that is ending and it's ending partly because Chinese costs have risen to the point where even the scale advantage is not always decisive. It's risen because the China, mar everyone realizes the China market is less uh, attractive than it used to be. It's risen. Uh, or it's, it's ending because, you know, people realize there's a major risk to investing in China. There's risk of war. There's risk of government expropriation. You've got to spend three hours a day thinking about Xi Jinping thought. That's a real thing, by the way. Like all, people in all these companies are having to study Xi Jinping thought for like literally hours a day. It is nuts. China's just becoming nuts again. It, China goes through periodic periods of being a nuts country. America does, but less so. China just, when China goes nuts, it goes more nuts. Uh, remember the Cultural Revolution? It, it probably won't get that bad, I hope, because uh, that was as bad as it gets. But China's, China's in a bad way. It's Xi Jinping sucks, and he is unleashing a lot of dark forces and doing a lot of stupid stuff. And so, so people realize that this is creating all kinds of risks, all kinds of costs, and they're just like, all right, screw it. We're not. So, so money's stampeding out of China now.
this leads a lot of people to think that we're deglobalizing because for 20 years, globalization and China were synonyms. That globalization meant China and China meant globalization. And that was just it for Western, for managers of Western companies. But that is no longer true. So the reason I'm bullish about globalization is because there is a huge, huge region that is absolutely ripe for Western investment. And to some degree for Chinese investment by Chinese companies looking to invest outside of China as well. So, so China is now going to become a more of a, an outgoing player in globalization where it used to just draw in the money. Now it may all send out some money like Western companies, Japanese companies, you know, I, I mentally count Japan and Korea as part of the West, but whatever I, I go West to get there. Right? Like I, I fly West to get to Japan. So it's part of the West. I decree that. Sorry. If you're a manager at like a, a, a company in the West, there's this huge region that's just waiting for you. And of course, India is by far the biggest piece of that. And everyone talks about India, but it's not just India by any means. There's Indonesia, which is huge. There's the Philippines, which is pretty big. There's Vietnam, which is pretty big. These are hundred million plus countries, you know, like compare that to like, you know, France is a country of like what, 60 million, like Vietnam is a country of like, I don't even remember 120 million, the Philippines, similar. These are like twice as big as like big, the big European countries. And there's a bunch of them, you know, there's Indonesia, there's Bangladesh, which is like over 200 million, I think, or, or maybe 180 million. I don't, anyway, it's really big. It's bigger even than Philippines or Vietnam. There's Bangladesh, Indonesia, uh, Philippines, Vietnam, and, uh, India. Just those five countries are just much bigger than China. India is already bigger than China now. And then combine all those South and Southeast Asian countries. You don't even have to start talking about like Pakistan, Pakistan's dysfunctional. Someday Pakistan could get in on this, right? They've got ports, they've got poor people, they can do stuff, but they're, they have political turmoil. But even without Pakistan, even without Myanmar, Myanmar is still in civil war, you've got huge, huge populations in South and Southeast Asia. This is home to almost a quarter of humanity, maybe more than a quarter of humanity. It's, it's a huge percent of humanity and it's all poor and it's got these governments that now realize that growth is important. They're on these smooth exponential growth curves and, and people have gotten, you know, that people have gotten uh, growth expectations baked in. So now Mo whether you're Modi or Marcos in the Philippines or the Vietnamese people who are in charge, whose names I don't remember or know, um, you want to keep that growth going. That growth is now a source of legitimacy. It's also a source of money for you because you're getting a piece of that in some sense, right? And it's a source of national power. So China's, China's national power now is threatening people and people are like, whoa, national power can be used for war, shit. You know, Putin did the world a favor by reminding people that national power can actually be used for war. People still do that, unfortunately. And so, so Indonesia wants a stronger nation so they can defend against China who claims their islands. Vietnam, Philippines, same thing. India, China claims their territory. Um, Bangladesh, no one's claiming their territory, but, but you know, Bangladesh would like more money so they can, you know, build defenses against flooding because climate change is about to flood that country. Uh, it's already starting to flood pretty bad. And, um, and so everybody wants to be rich now in South and Southeast Asia. This provides us a great opportunity. We can go to them and say, well, here's the policies we need. We need, you know, uh, special economic zones with lower taxes. We need export incentives. We need you to build infrastructure. India is building infrastructure like crazy. India is in the midst of a giant infrastructure boom. We need all these things. And then they'll say like, you know, okay. And they'll do some of the things. They'll upgrade their universities, try to increase college graduates. 
people will start studying STEM. You know, a whole bunch of people who otherwise would just like work at some store. People, instead of doing that, people will go study math and learn how to be an electrical engineer and do semiconductor packaging or something. You know, you'll get all these STEM workforces. India already has ridiculous amounts of STEM workforces, but the quality will, ra will rise. You know, some of those are, degrees are fake, but the quality will rise and um, quantity will rise and people will switch from software to manufacturing if necessary. You know, the, the whole call center boom will be like nothing compared to this, to true industrialization. And so people in the Philippines will go study some math. Yeah, the, just the, the incentive is there. And so this is a huge opportunity. Globalization won't just mean what it meant in the 90s. It's not just about cheap labor. It's not just about some sweatshop in Indonesia slapping together some Nike shoes anymore. Right now, it's about electronics. That's the big thing. We're, everyone's trying to get electronics out of China, looking for other place to put this stuff. And at the same time, the internet has made this so much easier. We should get Ryan Peterson on to talk about globalization here. Because Flexport is part of that boom, of the logistics boom. As so much logistics has been done inside China by Chinese companies within the borders of China. And now it's going to be done on the oceans. One cool thing, by the way, is China's a giant landmass, right? All the stuff, the made in China stuff's all made on the coast so you can ship it. But when you have these networks of production and, and, and Chinese companies were trying to buy stuff from other Chinese companies, at some point their costs rose enough where they were buying, you know, building factories in the interior and shipping stuff by car, which is like several times as expensive as shipping stuff over the water. That's just physics, right? Like you don't float down the road. And so um, as, as nice as your suspension is, you don't float down the road. I'm sorry. <laughs> South and Southeast Asia have massive amounts of coastline. Indonesia has essentially like mathematically infinite coastline. <laughs> um, it's fractal. It's, it's you know, it's the, the length is infinite. Uh, actually, that's true of all coastlines. But anyway, um, little math fact. But yeah, like Philippines is all coast. Indonesia is all coast. Vietnam is like a little thin strip. India is like this triangle into the ocean. It has all these, you know, uh, cities on the, on the coast. And so a lot of stuff is just going to get shipped around from one place to another. Instead of sourcing... There's huge opportunities for companies like Flexport or, you know, basically all the companies in Singapore to do coordination this way so that instead of sourcing from the Chinese factory down the road, you source from, you know, a Vietnamese factory a couple hundred miles away, but it's no more expensive because you're just shipping it over water. The expense comes from the coordination. So there's going to be a big boom in com highly complex logistics for these, you know, more fragmented non-China supply chains. And so, uh, so I'm, I'm bullish on Flexport, but also on, on its competitors, maybe, I don't know. Um, but we should get Ryan on here anyway, because he'd probably talk to us about this. And so that's going to be, it's going to be incredibly exciting. And at the same time, Chinese companies are going to start becoming competitors, right? So like Huawei or, um, uh, you know, Hisense, BYD or DJI or any of these, these big Chinese companies that we've come to know are going to start going into Southeast Asia and trying to invest there. They won't go to India though. Well, you know, the geopolitics stops, you know, India will block, will block their investments also because they're probably racist. Uh, but so, oh yeah, no, no. Chinese racism toward India is like intense. I don't oh. mean in America, obviously. I mean, yeah. in like the country of China, there's, there's a lot of like, you know, we're better than India <laughs> and it will shoot them in the foot thinking that way. But anyway, so 
this is going to be an exciting, adventurous era of globalization. It will be more exciting than the 20 year era we just left. It will, the China era was not nearly as exciting because everything was just China. Now there's so many different new frontiers. It is complex and the people who can navigate that complexity will win big, I think. Yeah. In the last decade, well, really, you know, from 2016, there was this wave of populism inspired by Bannon and Trump that, that was not just in the US, but, but had a global effect where there's sort of this, you know, anti-globalization, you know, nationalist versus globalist type thing. When you explain, like, where you're sympathetic or where uh, and where you're not sympathetic with that 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 movement uh, obviously brexit was a huge part of that um and how does that affect the conversation we're, we're having now if, if at all well so i think on one hand um you know the 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 when people like bannon would say i'm a nationalist blah 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 they they really meant a racial nationalist they were like i am of the people of the mayflower and blah 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 and and, and ultimately america is not going to go for that like that's just not America is just not really in favor. There's a few people who think that way, but like ultimately we don't want that. You know, you can get Republicans to to complain about diversity all day, but in the end they like it. Uh, most of them because it makes them money, and because like ultimately like those are just your neighbors, right? So that that sort of idea that we you know have to move to a racial nationalist concept of America is is just dead in the water. That's DOA. Now, in other countries, maybe, you know, maybe in, uh, in, in Sweden or France or something, that, that'll be a big deal, but not here. But what the kind of nationalism that will, uh, I think, be enduringly um, powerful is economic nationalism, the idea that we're done letting other countries screw us over. What people have to realize is that all of the screwage was just one country, and it was China. For 20 years, globalization just meant China. Mexico wasn't screwing us over there. There was this big worry about NAFTA. Every study of the effect of NAFTA basically says it was a giant nothing burger. You know, there was worries about like factories in Indonesia, blah, blah, blah. Studies of this show that in the 90s, this was a nothing burger. And every, we did really well in the 90s. We we're very prosperous. Our wages rose. Everyone had a job. Our manufacturing increased. And then it was during the 2000s and the 2010s that manufacturing fell off a cliff and uh, you know, the working class really suffered a lot. And the, the China shock was a big cause of this. It wasn't automation. We didn't get any automation technology in 2005 that we didn't have in 1995. Like we didn't have chat GPT running factories, right? Um, we had slow, steady progress in machine tools, but that's all. Economic nationalism directed at China is a, is a healthy thing to some degree. You know, we, of course, we don't want to get like paranoid, but China, the country did do a whole bunch of, you know, unfair and underhanded things, intellectual property theft, making their currency cheap for a while, uh, even though that's over now, all other kinds of dumping the, the Huawei stuff and, and dumping in a lot of industries where government would just subsidize the massive disruptive uh, dumping. Um, and so they did all these bad things and this hurt us. You know, it helped, it helps us in some ways. It helped our, our finance industry. Certainly it helped us. Some people consume cheaper, slightly cheaper stuff. But ultimately, it hurt us as a nation. And economic nationalism as a backlash to the, that, that thing is, is useful. We just have to realize that, that the new era of globalization is not going to be harmful to us like the era of China-centric globalization was. That is not gonna, it is not a threat. It is an, globalization was a threat for 20 years, and it's gone back to being more of an opportunity. Not just for fat cats, but for average Americans um, your company will be stronger and have higher sales and hire more people 
like in the 90s. The 90s were great. We have a chance to bring some of that magic back with the new South and Southeast Asia-centric globalization. We need to embrace that. As long as it's not China, will be that it'll make it, it's more of an opportunity than a threat. China was special. And I, I hear you that we need to. Do you think people will like? Do you think the Steve, Steve Bannon type listening to this will will believe that it will um, you know raise wa wages for workers or, or make the life better for for middle class? Well, I can't speak to Steve Bannon himself. I think he like got some horrible disease and turned into like a mushroom or something. Anyway, <laughs> no, I don't know what happened. But but the the sort of like hardcore guys who hate immigration and they're just like you know, defense of the West, blah, blah, although they wouldn't count Japan in the West. Um, but those guys, nothing, nothing will make those guys feel better, right? Uh, like not even getting laid will make those guys feel okay about life. <laughs> nothing will make those guys feel okay about life. And, and those guys are just going to be mad forever. And I, I wish I could do something for them and I don't know what I can do, but there's not that many of them. I think your average American who does not like what happened to our economy in the 2000s and 2010s from trade with China will be open to the idea that if the, that the new globalization is actually an economic block against China. We need closer integration with countries that are also trying to defend themselves against China. And I think people understand that. And I think that when people, when the economy goes well from that, you know, and from other, from technological acceleration, obviously as well, and from other things, industrial policy, all these things, I think are, are, despite the age of austerity, our economic future is bright. Like if you were standing there in 1992, it was true that we were going to do austerity. And it was also true that our economic future was very bright. And if you were standing in the, in the middle of the great recession, our economic future was actually bright as well, because the late 2010s and recently have actually been pretty good economically. But I guess my point is that I think eventually people will start to think of globalization more as a, as an opportunity than a threat. Once they realize that it's that, that China was special and that, that globalization now is, is, you know, about reducing our dependence on China. I think that will resonate with people. People understand that on some level. Yeah. Gearing towards closing here. Is there anything we haven't covered that's, that's worth sort of wrapping a bow on it or, what are the big questions that you've, you're going to be looking out for going forward in terms of, you know, what, what, what's unfigured out yet? What's unfigured out, I think, is, is when is consumer sentiment? Is when will Americans start thinking that we we're in a good economy? When will optimism return? I think optimism is warranted, but I'm a very future looking person who looks at these data things and like thinks about theory and thinks about what will be happening 10 years down the line. When will the average American, you know, how long does inflation have to stay low? How long does the employment market have to, the job market have to stay tight? How much do wages have to go up before America, the average American thinks, okay, this is good. Good times are here again. It's morning in America. And, you know, maybe Biden or maybe somebody else can start running those ads. Like it's morning in America. When do we get back to that, to morning in America? I think it has to happen if we keep the economy good for long enough. It has to happen. I just went, you know, I'm looking out to see when I can see the glimmer of optimism. I op knock on wood. I'm optimistic. I'm, I'm meta optimistic. I'm optimistic that next year we'll see um, an increase in optimism if things keep going well. Yeah. And and what do you think is the trigger for that? Just enough. Um, yep. Is it the numbers doing well repeatedly, yep. or just yeah, like 
we will continue to, to beat you with prosperity until morale improves. <laughs> we will just hammer you over the head with higher wages and like more jobs until, yeah. until things improve. So is, is it when costs, cause it's not just the wages. It's also sort of like, you know, if, if healthcare, housing and education, et cetera, you know, rise in proportion to that, you know, cost well, college tuition is going down uh, relative to inflation. That's good. And Medicare spending has really leveled off. It has stopped going up. Uh, as we discussed, the government pays yep. the majority of healthcare in America. So um, I don't know about private insurance spending, but I think that the great boom in, in healthcare costs, its days are numbered. The excess costs, of course, the, the, the things are still too expensive. We want to bring those costs down and we will. But the age of like ever rising costs for big ticket services is drawing to a close. Coll yeah, college tuition is going down, man. <laughs> what about housing? Um, housing's still keeping pace with in, about keeping pace with income. Yeah. San Francisco rents are down. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll see. We'll see. Yeah. Let's wrap on that. Um, you know, a dose of, uh, optimism, uh, Noah, uh, yeah. until next time. It's been great until next time. Econ 102 is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind moment of Zen in the arena, the cognitive revolution and more. If you like what you hear, subscribe and leave us the review in the App Store. You can keep up with both of our Substacks for written analysis of the topics we cover in the show at noahopinion.substack.com and erictornberg.substack.com. Thanks for listening. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.